Hello for lover, you have tuned into Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific or Lo Ingoa, also Sana Suisuiki. Coming up. I've just uh, got uh, reactions from uh, our team back in Suva. Everyone's uh, very, very happy. It's a historical day for Fijian journalism as a draconian media law is scrapped. Also, when the military government came in after the coup of 2006, uh, things be- began to change. We hear from our very own Elias Satora, who speaks about his own experience in Fiji's media, and later on... Considerable amount of money put into resurrecting a mine that's been left idle for uh, three years at least. The PNG mine that's still sitting on gold may reopen soon. Don Wiseman digs up the latest. The editor-in-chief of Fiji's oldest newspaper says the repealing of the country's controversial media law is a momentous occasion for press freedom. The Fijian parliament voted to scrap the Media Industry Development Act in Suva today. 29 parliamentarians voted in favour of the motion to repeal the law, while 21 voted against it with three abstentions. The law, which started as a decree in 2010, has been labelled as a noose around the neck of the media industry and journalists since it was enacted into law later that same year. Fiji Times Editor-in-Chief Fred Wesley, who was dragged into court on multiple occasions by the former Fiji First Government, had this to say shortly after receiving the news. Very emotional, very emotional. I just got, uh, just uh, found out about the repealing of the Media Industry Development Act. Uh, it's been 16 long years. I suppose um, it's, uh, well, one for the ages for us. And uh, I especially would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge all the journalists, all the reporters, the photographers, uh, people who slogged it out, people who uh, remained passionate about their work, uh, stayed true to the profession. Uh, and continued working, uh, working, uh, disseminating information, uh, getting people to um, you know, make well-informed decisions on, a, on a decisions on a daily basis. It wasn't an easy journey, but uh, truly thankful for today. Very and thankful. your message, have you heard from people on the ground? What was everyone's reaction uh, when the news was announced? Well, I, I've, I've just uh, got uh, reactions from uh, our team back in Suva. Everyone's uh, very, very happy. Very happy. We now, uh, I think, uh, for us now, the uh, the next uh, phase is uh, is the challenge of uh, putting together a uh, Fiji Media Council uh, to um, do the work of, uh, you know, um, listening to complaints and all of that. And uh, I am just overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and uh, very, very grateful. And finally, your message um, to this next generation of reporters that are finally going to be able to experience free press. Uh, well, uh, I, I suppose uh, we all should be looking forward to this, uh, look, looking forward to um, an era or, or, or days where uh, we don't have uh, draconian legislation hanging over our heads. Uh, we should be looking forward to uh, days where we can... Uh, uh, do what we are supposed to be doing, uh, holding government to account, holding um, uh, leaders, holding our leaders uh, to account and uh, making sure that uh, they're responsible in the decisions they make. And uh, uh, together, uh, we should be able to put in place uh, measures and move our country together positively. That was Fiji Times Editor-in-Chief Fred Wesley speaking with Lydia Lewis in Port Vila, Vanuatu.
Meanwhile, RNZ Pacific Senior Sports Journalist and PNR Board Member Elisa Tora says the Fiji Parliament's decision sends a strong message to the rest of the region that ensuring media freedom is ensuring our people have a voice. Tora was the news editor for the Fiji Sun when he decided to leave in February 2012, having had to fight for media freedom inside the newsroom as the company's management started their alignment with the former Fiji First government. He spoke with RNZ Pacific editor Koroi Hawkins, who began by asking what the Fiji media environment was like prior to the 2006 coup. Uh, thank you, Koroi. I, I probably go back to uh, two years before the, the act came into play. Eh? I started very early uh, as, as a young journalist in 1988 at the Fiji Times. That was under the uh, SVT government of uh, now the current Prime Minister of Fiji, uh, Sitiveni Rambuka. At that time, uh, media freedom was, um, I think, probably the best that Fiji uh, you know, went through. The government uh, worked with the media, opened, uh, you know, we had an, an open system. Uh, of course, there were issues, but uh, uh, the media freely had a, you know, had a hand in, uh, in reporting, discussing issues. Uh, then came um, the SDL government of uh, the, the late Laisi where the media also was free to do the work that they, they needed to do. When the, uh, the military government came in, uh, after the coup of 2006, uh, things be, began to change. Uh, even before the, uh, the decree came into play, uh, you know, newsroom editors in the different media outlets in Fiji were basically going through hell because you know, you'd have soldiers and um, officers from the Ministry of Information there to come and basically look at what stories we were putting out and pull out anything. So so the pressure was there already as soon as Ben Marama and this uh, group uh, came into power. And um, basically it was... Um, I think a lot of challenge for a lot of us. Uh, I know that a lot of uh, senior journalists moved out of Fiji uh, after that because of the pressure that, you know, and and, uh, not because that they uh, were afraid too much of what they can go through, but because they were not going to let go of the ethics uh, that they uh, learned as journalists. And, and basically, for me, that was the, the same case. I, I had worked in the media since 1988 and, and also worked in the communication um, sector in government, uh, you know, for, for government twice uh, before returning to the newsroom before I left Fiji. Uh, but that was basically what was happening. We, you know, there was just a lot of pressure. The government was uh, uh, on us all the time. Uh, we were not able to publish any government story, any stories on government, even if we had balanced it off, if we had someone from government that we had talking in response to, uh, you know, on, on issues. So uh, for our media mates in Fiji uh, to celebrate today, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, long overdue. Uh, and um, for the coalition government to be able to do that, uh, you know, it's uh, it just gives journalists, and not, not only journalists, but it, I think it also gives the people uh, in Fiji the freedom to be able to express themselves. Eh? Now, we've heard comments about some journalists working today in newsrooms knowing nothing else but being under this Media mm. Development Act. Going forward, like mm. how much of a shift mentally, 
um, in terms of the structure, in terms of the direction, all of this kind of thing has to happen. Yo, I, I, I know that um, um, the newsrooms now in Fiji, I think uh, probably 70% of uh, staff in newsrooms, in the different newsrooms in Fiji, uh, have uh, journalists who came into the scene when the act was actually uh, operating. Eh? So I think a lot came in in 2013 and since then have been, uh, uh, and most of them uh, young journalists who are trying to, you know, to make a name and trying to learn the trade. And uh, for them to operate under an environment where uh, there's so much, uh, you know, fear, uh, so much uh, that they were not uh, uh, really able to express themselves uh, uh, in, uh, would have been uh, very hard. And and now that, you know, that... that um, Act has been removed, repealed. It's going to take some time for them to, you know, to eventually get into the stride of things. Eh? Um, I think it's going to be positive for Fiji. Uh, a lot of um, uh, guidance would have to be from the senior hands who are on deck uh, to be able to get um, journalists to start, uh, you know, asking the questions, uh, getting it done. You know, a lot, a lot of hard questions they were not able to ask in the last 13 years, uh, especially on government issues. And uh, now, with that freedom now returned to them, uh, they'd be able to do that. But at the same time, I would caution that um, experienced hands on deck be able to guide our younger journalists, and especially coming out of this. Uh, while the freedom has been given, I think it is very important also that we as journalists must remember that with the freedom comes a lot of responsibilities. The owners of the Pogera gold mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province hope to be back in production shortly. The mine has been shut for nearly three years after the government refused to roll over the lease. Last year, new shareholding was agreed between the Canadian multinational Barrick and PNG stakeholders, who include local landowners and the provincial and national governments. In New Pogera Limited, the PNG stakeholders will control 51% while Barrick will run it. Now the company has to obtain a special mining lease before the mine can be reopened. Our PNG correspondents Scott Wyde and Don Wiseman looked at the latest development. You know, one of the first things that popped up after the special mining lease ended previously under the previous agreement was that uh, the government was talking about taking over 100% or at least a majority share. So so that dragged on for negotiations over that dragged on for a while. And there were parties both within landowner groups that uh, were not too comfortable with government owning a majority share. They said basically that, you know, the government has no experience running a mine and it doesn't have a good track record managing companies or venturing into the corporate sector. So that was... Uh, I guess the main thrust of the arguments that were there. Now, they've resolved a lot of that. And as you can see in the new agreement published and and signed, 51% of it is owned by Papua New Guinean stakeholders, including local landowners and the Enga provincial government. Do we know what sort of percentages within that? That they haven't uh, really said anything yet publicly, but uh, the bulk figure is a 51% ownership by Papua New Guineans. Uh, groups, landowners, and, and stakeholders, including the government, yeah, and, and 47 
90% by Beric Plus management of the mine. There are going to be significant expenses in getting it up and running again. Is that some of that money coming from from this PNG shareholding, or is it all from Barrick? Those details I'm not aware of, but there's going to be, as you said, considerable amount of money put into resurrecting a mine that's been left idle for uh, three years at least. So just one of the main concerns previously when the mine shut down was if we are going to get this mine back up and running, there's going to be cost and the cost will be very high just for the maintenance to rehabilitate the equipment and fix everything up before the mine resumes. As you say, it involves local landowners in the ownership of the mine. Is it all the local landowners? Are they all satisfied, all the local landowning groups? Because we are hearing divergent views. Yes, there will be, as expected, various views on the ownership of the Pogra mine and whether you know the benefits will go to landowners or this group or that group. And it's, it's always been a, a mine that has had a lot of controversy over the last you know, 20 years. Uh, so those points of contention will still be there. And I guess it's just a matter of going forward and managing as, as they go along. But the government, as much as possible, is trying to sell this idea of a 51% shareholding by Papua New Guinea in this whole venture, in this new venture. And one of the aspects of this new venture that is a very much a positive, I would imagine, is a commitment by Barrick that it will buy produce locally as much as possible, that it will employ a lot more locals than it has previously. Inga province is, is a province that really has a tough time most of the time, doesn't it? And the Porgira district has a tough time. So things like this must be seen as very positive. Yeah, it, it, it is a difficult mind to manage. I mean, with the local populace, uh, the difficulties, uh, and as a transit point for arms smuggling, illegal mining, all that, it, it is a very difficult mine to to operate. And I've been there, you know, several times. And just being in the confines of a mine uh, and the management having to deal with all that is, is really difficult. And the expectations of people as well, uh, you have to manage that on a day-to-day basis. So giving the people an opportunity to participate actively through the the sales of vegetables, employment, all that will obviously put a positive spin back into the community. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs, or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team that made this episode, Manuele Eseta, Happy Easter. Tofasoi Fua.